10, he turns south and he's finished that. We'll start talking about that again this morning. And now this is the response of the northern tribes, the northern nations, and they're coming together to do battle with Israel. And this is the passage that we're going to read. Joshua chapter 11, verse 1 and following. When King Jabin of Hadzor, which is way up north, you know, miles north of the Sea of Galilee, it's way up north. When King Jabin of Hadzor uh, heard of this, he sent to King Joab of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Aksaf, and to the kings who were in the northern uh, hill country and in the Arabah south of the Kinneroth, the Sea of Galilee, and in the lowland in the Naphtoth door on the west. I just realised I'm not reading the same version, am I? Where am I up to on that? To the Canaanites in the east and to the west. I'll read from the screen. To the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Vegemites. Sorry. To the Jebusites in the hill country and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They don't mean a lot of those names to mean much to us, do they? That's why you've got Bible maps in the back of your Bible and it's helpful to look them up and get a, a visual picture of what's going on. Uh, so we're up north, way up north and heading down towards the middle part of the country, uh, to Hermon in the middle of the region of Mizpah. They came out with their troops. All of these nations got together, this massive coalition and assembly. They got together a large number of uh, troops and they had horses and chariots, huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces, made camp together at the waters of Merom, again, way up near Galilee, uh, to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. Because by this time, tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to the greater Sidon, to Meshroth Maim. Who picked this passage? And to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung the horses, burnt the chariots. And at that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hadzor and put its king to the sword. Hadzor has been the head of all of these kingdoms. Everyone in it, they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them. Uh, what? Not sparing anything that breathed. And he burned up Hadzor itself. <clears throat> For that's about the third city that he's burned. Joshua took all of these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the other cities uh, built on their mounds except Hadzor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all of the plunder and the livestock of these cities, but all of the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded... Have we read this? The Lord commanded his servant Moses. So Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. It's a great phrase. He left nothing undone of all that the land Lord had commanded Moses to do. The passage will go on and I'll come back and read a little bit of the remainder of chapter 11, but that's where we want to focus this morning. Turn your minds back just a little bit just before this story kicks off is Joshua has come to the defence of the Gibeonites people who had deceived him but now had been embraced by the covenant God um, and had Joshua had responded appropriately to Kepi's word to go and defend them and in the process of doing that had then 
engaged in this whole battle against these five kings who had come against him. This is last week's story. Well, now, these five kings who had encountered Joshua were beaten. And if you flip back to chapter 10 and verse 16, you can read it and following yourself. These five kings went and hid in a cave. There is a PowerPoint there somewhere that we need to bring up pretty quick. These five kings had gone and hidden themselves in a cave. And the thing that I want us to note about just this, first, there are two paragraphs in chapter 10 to note. In this paragraph, verses 16 till about 27, there is the truth of you can run, but you can't hide from God. Like these kings, they could run away. They could even hide themselves in a cave. But eventually, you'll be found out. That's exactly what happens. Um, And the God who is merciful to the Gibeonites is also the God who is just and holy against these other rebellious kings. There is this balance to the divine character that it's so easy for us to overemphasize one and to neglect the other. And we need to work hard in our minds and in our beliefs and in our statements to have a balanced understanding of the God of the Scriptures, that he is merciful and holy, that he is gracious and just, that he is loving and full of wrath. They need to have equal preeminence. And that's illustrated for us in these passage against these five kings. So these five kings run off and they hide. Their men are being killed and all five of them together going to this cave. Things had gone badly for them that day. And they probably thought, well, hide in the cave, it'll be dark soon. But of course, then there is the miracle of that extended day. It just never went dark. And so in verse 16, verse 17, they're discovered. Their concealment failed them, which is why I want us to grab the truth that we can't run from God. You can try to run away, but you can't hide. He knows where you are. Perhaps you're running from God today, a bit like these kings. This is certainly another picture of another time at the end of the world where the people of the world will try to hide from the coming of the King, the coming Lord, Je- coming Lord Jesus, the King. Um, they'll run even into the caves, the book of Revelation tells us, and they'll call for the mountains to fall on them and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It's a picture of a day that is coming. So we need to align our lives with God to be doing exactly what he says. Verse 18, Joshua is completely focused He's focused on being obedient to what God told him to do. So he hears the news that these kings have been found in the, in the, uh, the cave and he simply gives instructions. Put big rocks in front of it, lock them in, <clears throat> put guards there so they can't escape and let's get on with the job. He's very focused. Wasn't going to be distracted. Wasn't going to abandon the cause of what God called him to do in order to do something which was also pretty important. He was clearly focused. We will always have choices like that as well to be focused on doing exactly what God wants us to be doing and not to be distracted by some other important or good things, but to do that which is necessary. And that's always a lot easier to say say than do, isn't it? But that's the sort of wrestle we each have and need to maintain each day. Live this day for the Lord. Do what he wants us to do and to be as clear as possible. So these five kings have been confined. One commentator said the cave, in fact, became their prison and it was going to become their grave. God had reserved them for judgment. They'd escaped the sword, they'd escaped the hail, but they hadn't escaped. They may have thought they had. Maybe you're running. Maybe you've escaped some of the judgments or some of the things that are going on in life as well, but maybe you're being reserved for a greater judgment. So Joshua is focused. Um, He completes that task and 
Then he returns. The next paragraph is the five kings are slain. Next slide. So these five kings you can run but you can't hide from God. Don't even try. <clears throat> these five kings are then brought out and they are summarily executed. Uh, not immediately. There is a little role play that goes on. Joshua brings the five kings out, gathers all of God's people together, takes the leaders and he has them bow in the dust before him and then he asks them to put their foot on their neck thus symbolically demonstrating, dramatically indicating we have been completely victorious. These people are now in complete submission to us, complete subjugation. That was, and it was a word of encouragement to Israel that this is what God will do to all of the other kings who are yet to come against us, that we will be fully obedient to God. It's a picture for us of the last day again, of the day of judgment, when God's people will again be gathered when those who have rebelled against God would be brought out before him and they'll be made to kneel in the dust where they will be completely subjugated before him and God the righteous judge will be triumphant. It's a picture of that day. But it's also a picture until that day for us as well as we follow the Lord Jesus that we have hidden areas of our lives like those kings who had gone off and hidden in caves. We have areas and issues in our life that we hide. And what we need to do to be fully obedient to God is to bring out those issues, those secret sins, those hidden habits, those whatever it is, and to lay them in the dust before God, to expose them, and then to do what Joshua did to the kings, to execute them, to remove them from our life. The book of Proverbs says that if we cover up our sin, we will not prosper. You won't progress uh, it won't go well for you if you seek to cover your sin. But if you confess it, I am guilty, I have done this, and forsake it, give it up, then you will receive mercy, the Bible says. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Don't cover up, but walk in the light. Do what God wants us to do. Now I know that we know those things, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Or are we secretly indulging sinful habits and places and getting away with it? We're avoiding the sword. We're avoiding the hail. We're just being reserved for another greater judgment which is coming. So, face your issues. Deal with them honestly and appropriately. This is certainly what Joshua did with these kings. And then at the end of the chapter... <clears throat> He turns and having dealt with the kings, he then immediately gets on to take the very cities and places to the south where um, they had once reigned. And if you read the end of chapter 10, then you'll find that there is this, uh, well, there are three words, next slide, that he was engaged in this uh, on a daily basis, that he was determined and that he was devoted. He was sold out completely to God. Those same characteristics needs to animate us and mark our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus. It's a day-by-day -day thing. That's how Joshua was doing it. Don't sit around and wait for the easier times to come before you put your hand up and say, oh, I want to follow and serve God. It's a day-by-day -day battle. It's a day-by-day -day engagement. The easier times will not come. Follow God and follow him today. You need to be determined. Um, there is a contrast between chapter 10 and chapter 11. In chapter 10, I think, and verse... 22, it says Joshua took all of these kings in their land at one time. He did it in this large sweeping campaign. It was quick and it was sudden. In chapter 11, 
It contrasts with chapter 11, verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. Down south, happened very quickly. Up north was a slow and methodical, careful engagement for years. Sometimes in our life, just the same. There are some battles we will win and they'll be effortless. There'll be other things that you're going to have to wrestle with daily. You're going to have to be determined to focus upon God and be devoted to him. The end of the chapter, Joshua takes the army, having conquered all of those seven cities and so on around the region. He then returns to Gilgal, the place of their encampment. And he returns, I think, I think what the passage is saying is that he returned to the place where they first entered the promised land and they were committed. They returned to the place where they were circumcised, where they held the Passover and where the tabernacle was. It's Joshua touching base again, retapping into, uh, realigning himself, doing everything God said, doing all God said, doing it as God said it. We need to do that, likewise. We know this, but again, it's not do we know it, it's are we doing it? Are you having your daily times alone with God? you reconnecting with Gilgal, your place of submission and commitment to God? Faithfully attending the gathering together of God's people like an assembly like this? Making it a disciplined part of our life? Um, this is what we need to do. Well, this is where now chapter 11 kicks in. <clears throat> as soon as Joshua returns to Gilgal, and there's not peace, but relative peace down south, when he realigns himself, recommits himself to God, that's when the enemy up north hears and starts to gather against him. You can expect exactly the same thing. Whenever you're completely sold out to doing God, the enemy will assemble against you. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, this first part, bit, there is this uh, massive gathering together of the army, of these troops up north, as I read to you. There's a wonderful promise in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1 written up there for you. When you go into battle and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than yours, don't be afraid because the Lord Yahweh is with you. Remember that he brought you out of Egypt where they had horses and chariots and an army much bigger than yours and he delivered you. It's by looking back and remembering your spiritual victories and what God had done in your life that you need to look forward, that the God who is with us is the God who is with us and the God who is working through us. So the people up north gather together. Their attitude is, the enemy of I enemy is my friend. And though who had nothing to do with each other, they now find themselves in agreement. This massive army, I don't know, hundreds of millions of soldiers, whatever the numbers were, they're huge, come against God. Now from Israel's perspective, the enemy coming against them was much greater than they were. Problems, difficulties, issues you face in your life are beyond you are beyond us. They're much greater than us. But the focus of the passage is, though the enemy against us or the situation against us is greater than us, the God who is with us is greater than them. The God who is with us is greater than that thing. That's the focus. 11, 1 to 5 is this massive gathering together. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that situation. Don't be afraid of... What's coming against you for tomorrow at this time? I'm going to hand it all over to you. I will deliver them. And it's not Joshua, just sit back, take it easy, I'm going to do it. It's really, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it with you and through you. You've got a role to play. Verse 6, he says, um, go and hamstring their horses um, and burn their chariots. 
Their numbers were greater. They even had what we would put it in our terms as modern technology. Horses and chariots were the modern weaponry, the tanks of the ancient world. And Israel didn't have them. And they could have been scared by it. But their focus was to be on God. I want you to notice this balance. This divine sovereignty, again, against our human involvement, our human responsibility. These are not mutually exclusive, but rather to be brought together. This one, God's sovereignty, stimulates this one. It's because he is sovereign that I am encouraged, energised, stimulated to be fully obedient to him because he's in charge. It doesn't cause me to sit back and to be slack or indifferent. You know, there's an old saying, and it's sometimes, I guess, true, but there's a better saying, or I think it's better. The old saying is, let go and let God. Let go of the situation. Whatever's hassling, troubling you, and let God work. I think a more balanced way of saying that is let God work but grab hold. Let God do his stuff because he is God but grab hold. Don't be passive. Don't simply let go. If that means to sit back and do nothing, then it's wrong. It's really let God work his purposes out and grab a hold of God and and do exactly what he wants you to be doing. It'll create this confidence and this freedom for you. Next slide, or maybe the one before. Psalm 20, verse 7 is an interesting psalm uh, and verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. Exactly for this passage, isn't it? Some people trust in human endeavours, what they see, whether it's technology or it's numbers or our own abilities, but our trust is to be in the Lord our God. Not that we, our trust means we do nothing, but our trust motivates us to be actively engaged, to do as best we can. Down to verse 15. Here's a couple of just quick thoughts. Out of the midst of this massive force coming against them, you have Joshua being a model servant. Verse 15. As the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He did what he was told to do. The Bible said it, he did it. Took God's word very seriously. He meditated upon it day and night. He aligned his life and purposes. Think about that truth for you. Is that true in my life? Am I doing what God wants? Am I doing all God wants? Am I doing it as God wants? Am I doing that in my life, in my roles? Am I doing that as a husband? I'm doing all God wants, as God wants, the way I should. Am I doing it as a parent? Am I doing it as a grandparent? Am I doing it in my job? Am I doing it as a neighbour? Am I doing it as I I work on the uh, play on the sporting field or whatever it is? Am I God's person in all the situations and circumstances of my life? That's worth pausing and thinking about and evaluating. Am I God's servant? Fully obedient, because that's what he's looking for. And we get so deceived, so easily distracted. We were talking during the week as a staff, and I think I made the comment that there was an old bishop, J.C. Ryle, who lived, died about 1900, um, who made the comment that when we get to glory and we see Jesus... And whatever happens at that point, if we kneel before him, but when we see him, J.C. Ryle says, in all of his resplendent glory, 
when we see how magnificent he is and then with whatever we have to present to him, we will, J.C. Ryle says, wish that we had made better choices now in this life, that we might have more to present to him, more of our faithfulness. More, we'll look back, he says, he surmises, and we will critique ourselves by saying, why wasn't I more committed? Why wasn't I more fully obedient? Why wasn't I more self-denied? Whatever it is. I agree with him. We need to have that perspective of one day I will stand before the king and he will, he's loving and he's kind and he's merciful and he will take me in because he's true to his word. But he's the master, he's the king, he's Lord and he looks for obedience in me. He looks for complete obedience in me. And when he sees obedient, he applauses and he encourages and he stimulates but he wants total obedience. And this passage is intimating and in a moment will indicate how Joshua almost did it. Almost. He was fully obedient. Almost. He just fell a little bit short. He is a model servant. Is seeking to do, attempting to do everything that God wanted him to do. Let's move on. In the wrap-up situation to this story of chapter 11, from verse 16 and following, you get this historical statement being written. So Joshua took all of the land, and then it outlines the land for us, from north, south, east, west, from the highlands to the lowlands to the coast. He took it all. And it says, verse 18, so Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. Bible scholars work it out, you're talking about five to seven years. That's a long time for a war. Well, there's a point for us to grab a hold of. God's call on our life can sometimes be quite demanding. Next slide. God's call on our life can be quite demanding. Joshua had to do this on a very regular basis, daily, weekly, monthly, for years. And he's not a young man. He's getting on. And when God calls us, we need likewise to be aware that there's going to be energy and effort. We need to be committed for the long haul, not a short burst. Exodus 23 on the screen says, God says, I will not drive the people of the Canaan out before you in one year unless the land become desolate and wild beasts you know, multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out. So I'll drive them out and then you occupy. I drive them out and you occupy. I drive them out and you occupy. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Keep going. Is to be a persistence, an endurance. God works in such a way as this that requires that sort of endurance on our part. This is God's pattern. He's been doing it throughout all of my life and in the books I read, he's done it that way in generations gone by. This is how God works, sovereignly with us and through us and us enduring. What does that mean? Well, very practically and very simply, being fully obedient to God, being spiritually in tune with him and being as committed as we possibly can be, when we are the best we can be spiritually, we'll still have to wash our face, clean our teeth, take out the garbage, pay the bills, mow the lawn, do the normal things of life. That's part of the long haul. Following Jesus is not all dramatic. It's not all spiritual highs. There are highs and there are spiritual experiences. 
but there is also the marrying of the mundane and the ordinary. God's call on our life is demanding and it's over the long haul. And you, like me, might very well know and can think of immediately people who have begun but who have given up because it wasn't all thrills and spills and wasn't all exciting. God's call on our life is demanding. Count the cost, but it's worth it. Verses 19 and 20 has a disturbing phrase for us that I just want to mention in passing. Verse 19 says, There was not a town that made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites, Gibeons, uh, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All were taken in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts so that they would come against Israel in battle in order that they might be utterly destroyed and that they might receive no mercy but be exterminated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. God is at work in our world and God is doing things to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus but God, the loving, caring, merciful God is the one who is holy, just and full of wrath who is working his purposes out. People might be escaping the sword and escaping the hailstorms and they might be hiding in caves but God is simply reserving them for a greater judgment. God's hardening of the heart is God hardening a decision that that person had already made, like he did with Pharaoh. This person refuses to hear, refuses to respond to what God's going on and God goes a little bit harder. They hear again, they choose again and God goes a little bit harder. It becomes increasingly desensitised to the ways of God. God is determined to work his purposes out. He is the sovereign God. And he is keeping count. Genesis 15, 16 talks about how God's speaking to Abraham a thousand years before this. As your people are going to, we've spoken about this before, your people are going to go down to Egypt and there they'll multiply and after four generations they will come out. And I'll remove the people of Canaan and I will give this land to your descendants because the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. An interesting phrase, isn't it? The sins of the Amorites, the people of Canaan, is not yet full. God is watching, counting. And human history teaches us that nations rise and fall. Empires come and empires go. As the sin mounts and the judgment of God comes in this world, God is a God who is hardening. So we need to pray. We need to be active. We need to be energetic about doing the things God wants us to be doing and trusting God to work his purposes out. So Joshua is a remarkable man, sold out to God, very successful, took all of the land that he was given. Chapter 11 finishes with this paragraph deliberately. It's written for the ancient people of Israel who knew their story. They knew that the people had come out of Egypt had come to Mount Sinai and got God's law, had gone up to Kadesh Barnea, bottom of the promised land, sent 12 spies in, and then what happened? When the spies came back, Israel knew their story. 10 of the 12 spies gave a negative report and they said, there are giants in the land, the Anakim, the sons of Anak. They are so big, we look like grasshoppers to them. That's how we see ourselves, that's how they see us. They're defiant. They're cruel. We can't do it. Here is the last paragraph to this story. Joshua chapter 11, verse 21 and following. So at that time, Joshua came and wiped out the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron and from Debir, from Anab and from the hill country of Judah and from all of the hill country of Israel. 
Joshua utterly destroyed them with their towns. None of the Enochim was left in the land of Israel. It's a little bit like a contrast. Point of failure, ten, ten spies come back, no, we can't do it. When Joshua gets into the promised land, it's almost like he's walking around saying, where are they? I want them. And he goes and he gets them and he kills them. He removes them. That which said, we can't do it, Joshua did it. What's the point? Our fears are needless. Our fears are groundless. When God says, do something, we are to go do it. Not to observe how big they are or how strong the opposition is or the reasons why we can't. Our trust is not in horses or chariots. Our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. If God says, do it, then we are to go do it. And Joshua did. Mostly. Something else to note. Verse 22 of chapter 11. None of the Enochim was left in the land of Israel except except in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod. Three places. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it as an inheritance uh, to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. After seven years there is now rest. There is just three little pockets where the Enochim, these giant people, were left in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod. We're not told why he didn't destroy them but it is a picture, a very subtle hidden picture in the text but it's there. It's a picture of incomplete obedience. It's a tragedy because as the story will unfold in the future these little bits that were left will grow up to become monsters against Israel. These little leopards will become big leopards. You jump ahead in your Bible, the story of Gaza, Judges chapter 16, that's where Samson falls, you know, Delilah, and he gets arrested and he gets taken down and that's where he's grinding the grain and the name of the Lord is, is humiliated, it's dishonoured. What would have happened if Joshua had destroyed the Anakim in Gaza? Well, that story wouldn't have unfolded. Same is repeated in Gath. That's where Goliath comes from. He comes out and for 40 days, 80 times, morning and evening, for 40 days, dishonours the name of the God of Israel. And then you have that magnificent story of David picking up five stones and he takes one in the sling and sticks it right between his eyes and cuts off his head. And the question is asked, why did Joshua pick up five stones? My Old Testament lecturer said, because Goliath had four brothers. What would have happened if Joshua had have taken the Anakim out of Gath? No Goliath. Oh, but then there wouldn't be the story of David and Goliath. Hmm. There wouldn't have been a necessity for it. Life would have been different. What about Ashdod? Well, Ashdod is a terrible unfolding in Bible history. In 1 Samuel chapter 4 is where the ark is captured and taken to, the, to Ashdod and it's in the temple of Dagon. And God responds to that, but it's the humiliation. It's the loss of this symbol of God's presence. Nehemiah chapter 4, centuries later, it's the Ashdodites still there who are rebelling and fighting against Jeremiah building the wall. And at one point in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has to go back to Babylon to report. And when, he, when he's away, Nehemiah chapter 13, the children of Israel in Jerusalem married the wives, the daughters of Ashdod, 
there is this intermingling, this permeating. What would have happened if Joshua had have removed the Anakim and the people of Ashdod when he had the opportunity? We're not told why. We're just told that little simple phrase. He took them all out except Garzagath and Ashdod. Well, the application is easy, isn't it? What little area of our life are we not surrendering to God? I'm totally committed to God except for that. God can have all of me except my money. God can have all of me. He can have 10% of my money, but he can't have 90%, the other 90%. God can have all of me, but he can't have my time. God can have all of me, but he can't have his way in my life, in my marriage or in my family or in my work. God can have all of me except you're sowing the seeds for future struggle and possible great disaster. You will harvest. What we plant is what we will reap. So let's bend our knees before God now. Let's do an inventory of our life and let's take the kings out of the cave. Let's get rid of the Gars of Garth and Ashdod's in our lives. And we all have them. I would imagine I have them. And this passage has pushed me to the point of saying, what are the things in my life? Oh, that one and that one. And so I've brought them before God and I've laid them before him. And I look forward to seeing the difference that's going to make for me in my life. I encourage you to do the same. The five kings, this is what we have said, the five kings were caught. You can run, but you can't hide from God. The five kings were taken out of the cave and slain. The picture of our own sanctification. Slay those things in your life. And it's a picture of the last day. The seven cities down south were taken and Joshua did it on the basis of a daily determined devotion. When we're sold out to God, the enemy will come against us and it will require us, like Joshua, full obedience. God's call is demanding. And God is in the process of saving, but he's also in the process of hardening people who are refusing to respond to him. Our fears are needless because greater is he who is in us, greater is the God who is with us, and we just need to do what he said. And we need to remove these blots on a page of almost perfect performance that Joshua had. We need to get rid of our Gazas, Garths and Ashdods. Let's pray to do exactly that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you um, are the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sovereign One, working purposes out in creation and you will have your way your plan will be achieved and the great thing is lord you've given us an insight you've helped us to understand part of that plan you've invited us to join you in your work of mission to let you take control and for us to grab a hold to get involved lord we've also been reminded that you're a god who looks for complete obedience. And in the process of looking, you discover in our lives areas, pockets, that aren't surrendered, that are not handed over. So Lord, I invite you this morning by your spirit, examine our life, search us, put your finger on those areas of our life that you want dealt with. Whether it's confessed and forsaken, whether it's surrendered or whether it's simply stepping up and getting involved. Lord, have your way 
in each of our lives, individually, as couples, as families, in our work situations and in our church. And then, Lord, in our nation. We pray these things because Jesus is Lord and is coming soon. Everybody said...